invite you to turn with me in God's Word. There's a copy of it to the Gospel according to Luke, the 15th chapter. And I'll begin reading in verse 11, which may be marked in your book, the parable of the prodigal son, and read through verse 32. And this is where Luke writes, And he, meaning Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its truths on all of our hearts. Please be seated. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Please do your work of spiritual surgery upon our own hearts and lay our hearts bare so that we might see our hearts as they really are, so that we might repent of whatever sin is there, so that we might experience your grace afresh. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. Rosaria Butterfield has written a book entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a very moving story of her journey to Christ. 
Rosaria was once a far left-wing lesbian English professor at a secular university, and she was very turned off by what she perceived to be a church full of self-righteous hypocrites, a church full of elder brother types, so to speak. So she wanted nothing to do with Jesus. She wanted nothing to do with the church. She was content and very happy in her lifestyle. But the Holy Spirit met Rosaria where she is and gave her the new birth. It gave her the grace of repentance and drew her into the church through an unlikely friendship with a pastor named Ken Smith. There in the church, Rosaria experienced firsthand exactly what she expected. She was met with a lot of disdain. A lot of people looked askance at her conversion. They were suspicious of her. They looked down on her. So she saw a lot of haughty older brothers in the church. But her story remains one of the most powerful stories of redemption and repentance that I've ever read. Repentance unto life, the Westminster Confession tells us, is a saving grace. It's not something that we cook up by ourselves in our own hearts. It's something that God bestows upon us, by which a sinner being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sin. Not just that he got caught, he actually grieves for the sin itself. And he turns from those sins to God, fully intending and striving after new obedience. This story really is one of the best pictures in the entire scriptures of that kind of repentance. Not just saying you're sorry, but actually demonstrating that you're turning from your sin to Christ. And look at what prompts it. A few verses prior to our scripture reading, some Pharisees are watching Jesus from afar and they start to murmur or grumble because what they see Jesus doing. What is Jesus doing? Well, he is eating and welcoming tax collectors and sinners. Eating with them and welcoming them, showing them hospitality and love. And they don't like this a bit. And so they murmur, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. Well, Jesus responds to that grumbling and that murmuring by telling them a parable. And it's interesting that Luke calls it a parable, singular. He starts with telling us about a shepherd who loses 1% of his sheep, but then goes out and finds it and brings it back on his shoulders and is very, very happy that he found it. And then he ups the ante a bit by telling us about a woman who loses 10% of her coins, goes and finds the coin, scours her house, turns it upside down, finds the coin, and is extremely happy and so happy that she throws a party and probably spends all 10 of her coins celebrating. So she's even happier. Now the stakes are raised again as Jesus tells us about a man who loses 50% of his sons. Now you can replace a coin. You can replace a sheep. You can't replace a son. So this is a very, very painful loss. How happy must this man and presumably his family be if this boy ever comes back home? But this one boy runs away and we see a little brother's repentance here. We see a father's welcome. And then finally we see a brother's resentment. So first of all, a little brother's repentance. Before you repent, of course, you have to sin. And this young boy doesn't mess around when he sins. He really does a number. 
And this kid brother's sin shows us really the natural bent of our own hearts. Isaiah tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. Not just some of us. We've all gone astray in different ways. Our sin may not look like this younger brother's, but our sin is an offense to holy God. Now, as he divides up the estate, his part, the younger brother's part of the estate, according to the book of Deuteronomy, is one-third. And his older brother's share of the property is two-thirds. So both receive their share as the father does what he's asked to do. It's interesting that neither the younger nor the older brother seem to show any gratitude whatsoever for the, what, what the father's given them. But what the younger son is really saying to his father is this, Dad, you are dead to me. What should only really become mine when you are six feet under in the grave, I want right now. I want it yesterday. Give me what I am entitled to right now. What a dagger in the heart that must have been on many levels. But he gives his son what he asked for nonetheless. And this boy, we're told by Luke, by Jesus, uh, in very short order, liquidates all of his father's assets, which you were not permitted to do under the law. And he goes out and leaves and goes to a far country, convinced in his mind that if he gets out of the father's eyesight, he can get away with all sorts of things that he can't get away with if he stays at home. So the dagger must have been twisted in the heart as this father watches his young son walk away. But the boy in his mind is free. So cue the Steppenwolf guitar look here. This boy is born to be wild. This is a big party that he's embarking on, and he is living the dream. This is what he wanted. So he shoots the entire wide in a matter of months. He can't know what's coming. Nobody could. But at the worst possible time, as he's blowing his father's estate, a famine hits. And the extent of the Dire straits that a famine can wreak in a third world country are just horrendous. It's horrific what a famine can cause uh, civilized people to do. But this boy begins to experience it. The economy dries up in very short order. His friends, so-called friends, stop showing up. His stomach starts growling. There's no food in the cupboard. This boy's in trouble. And so he gloms on to some guy who sends him out in the field to feed his pigs and the boy has to think at some point pigs has it really come to this and his stomach tells us yes it has come to this pigs are unclean animals by old testament law no self-respecting jew is going to come anywhere near a pig there are no blts for a good jewish boy and so to take this job going out in the field to feed pigs is really to renounce his own judaism this boy can't go anywhere near a synagogue. He can't celebrate the Sabbath day. He won't be allowed anywhere near the people of God. So it's really a curse. He's taking this curse upon himself. But a starving man doesn't have the luxury of self-respect and ritual purity. He's got to feed his stomach or he will starve. He's not exaggerating here. His body is emaciated. He's hollow. He's desperate for something to eat. So hungry that he craves pig food. He'll eat absolutely anything, but no one gives him anything because times are tough. The pig farmer won't even spare the carob pods, which are this undigestible husk of the carob plant. 
In no way is this going to be nutritive to him at all, but he's so hungry that he wants to fill his stomach with something. So he's truly desperate. And then it happens. The cold, hard consequences of his sin punch him in the gut, and he comes to himself. As it's often said, you have to see yourself for who you are before you come to Christ. So he wonders as he stands barefooted in this pigsty, starving to death, what am I doing here? And he reflects back to how things were back on his dad's farm where even the farmhands had more than they needed. The lowly people on the farm, the lowliest servants. And he says, here I am, the father's son, starving in a pigsty. He hasn't just been away from home, you see. He's also been away from himself. And he's living a nightmare. And so truth is really smacking this young man in the face. He's got the two by four of inconvenient truth that is really just upside his head at this point. And he is biblical repentance personified. There's not a clear picture of repentance anywhere in Scripture. First of all, he's truly aware of his sinfulness, as the Westminster Standards say. He knows he sinned against heaven and against his father. He realizes what the psalmist does. David the psalmist realizes that first sin is an offense against God. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against a lot of other people. But first and foremost, his sin is an offense against a holy God. And he realizes that. This young man does too. Our culture may say, nobody's getting hurt, so what's the harm? But the harm is, is that God's law is being broken. And more than that, it is the holy law giver that is personally being sinned against. Our God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He looks on it with repugnance. He cannot brush it under the rug. So this boy knows he's no longer worthy to be called his dad's son. That is a true statement. Jewish law allows parents to disown their defiant children. And if that sounds harsh to you, that's not even the worst punishment that the Old Testament uh, stipulates for defiant children. And yet this boy also, on a rudimentary level, still understands mercy. He knows his father is a good man. He knows his father is a generous man. He knows that if he goes back with his tail between his legs, he has a fighting chance of being hired on again as a farm worker. He'll certainly be better off than he is now starving with his feet in a pigsty. So he hopes for just a, just a modicum of mercy, just the slightest bone that his father can throw his way. And we see here that it's the grace of God that is drawing us to repentance. This boy grieves for and hates his sin. There's a bit of self-loathing here. He's thinking, why did I ever leave home? What, a, what an idiot I was to leave home. But you see, if, if that's as far as he goes, he's still going to starve in this pigsty. Good intentions are not going to get us back to where we need to be. They must be acted on, crucially. And so... The most important part here is this boy turns from his sin. See, he doesn't just feel bad about it. He doesn't feel good about feeling bad. He doesn't just 
cry and, and feel remorseful. He actually does something about it. He endeavors after new obedience. He'll be content to serve his dad. It'd be the obedience of a slave, but anything's better than his current state of affairs. So acting on his decision, he does a 180. He does what John the Baptist preached that we should do. Keep fruit in, in keeping with repentance. Don't just say you repent. Actually demonstrate it by your action. So, a young brother's repentance. Secondly, a father's welcome. From far, far away, his dad spots him down the road, which means this young man is coming back in the middle of the day when everybody can see him. He has no shame at all. Doesn't care who sees him. So his dad spots him way down the road, which tells us that the father probably looked down this road every single day, hoping, yearning, waiting for any sign that his son is coming back home. He has every right to disown this little ingrate, but that is not what he does. And as soon as he sees him down the road, he he doesn't even wait. This dignified man of means, and, and he must have been a man of some means, hikes up his robe and he runs down this road to meet his son. And Jewish men didn't run. That's not something you did. There was a a dignity and a protocol about these things and they didn't run but this man does he gets there and he bear hugs his son and he kisses him now in that culture a kiss did not just mean affection it usually meant forgiveness so it's crucial to understand here that before the son even utters a word of repentance he's already forgiven He's already been given this kiss that signifies restoration and forgiveness. His son is unclean. He's filthy. He's been in a pigsty. He must have looked terrible. But who cares? His son is back home. And so the father grabs him in a bear hug, which means now the father is unclean. But again, who cares? This is an occasion to celebrate. Love is stronger than dignity. Love is stronger than pride. Love is stronger than ritual purity or anything else that gets in the way of love. This young man makes the speech that he's rehearsed over and over again, but the father hardly hears him. He says, bring out the best robe. And here's where Jesus Christ comes into the picture, who is our elder brother, who says, take away these filthy rags of righteousness and give the perfect robe of righteousness that I myself have earned for this person with my life and death and resurrection. So he's saying, you've been a slave too long. So here's a a son's ring for your finger. Here are some sandals for your feet. And here is the very best that I can give you. I'm going to kill the fattened calf for you because this is a prime rib kind of night. This is a, a time to celebrate. You were dead and now you're alive. You're back. So this is a joyous occasion to say the very, very least. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us to think of ourselves the way that Christ Jesus thought of himself. Jesus was equal with God, but chose not to cling to the advantage of that status at all costs. But when the time came, he veiled his Godhead in human flesh. He became human and he stayed human, took on the status of a slave. What abject and utter humiliation the Lord Jesus took on for us. And he lived a selfless, obedient life. And then he died a selfless, obedient death. A crucifixion. 
So I love the way Tim Keller put it in his book. Christ, the Son of God, became a slave so that he could make slaves like us into sons of God. So how gracious God is to give us the grace of repentance. The Father's love takes people who are dead, unresponsive, unliving, and makes them gloriously alive. You and I were once slaves to some sin. It may be known only to us and God, but there was once something that enslaved us, but God sent his son to become a slave in your place and in my place so that we could take his place as sons. When that happens, when we're given repentance and when we turn back to the Lord, there's this great party that gets thrown in heaven among the angels, this cause for celebration. So we look at the one who knew no sin, but for our sakes became sin, so that we might be made in him the righteousness of God. And what an occasion that is to be joyful and to celebrate. Jesus loves to receive and eat with sinners like you and me. Now it's important to be reminded that Jesus never for a second condoned the sin of those sinners. He, he said to the woman caught in adultery, for example, Not just, I don't condemn you, but also go and leave your life of sin. But even though he didn't tolerate their sin, he still loved them. And they were drawn to him as a result. Sinners absolutely love to be in the presence of Jesus. Do they love to be in the presence of his people? Thirdly, and finally, a resentful big brother. Meanwhile, in the midst of all this celebration, a young man trudges uphill toward his home and he's absolutely exhausted after a hard day slaving away in the fields. He wipes the sweat off his brow because it's no picnic picking up his brother's slack ever since he left to go party. But that's the price you pay for being the responsible one in the family. And he thinks to himself, you know, it's kind of a square deal. I've got it better than most. I take care of the farm and dad gives me a place to live. But something's missing from this relationship. I don't feel close to him. I don't enjoy it. He feels like a boss to me. He's always looking down that road, waiting for that loser to come back. How pathetic that is. I sure hope he appreciates all that I'm doing for him. Maybe I should run off and have a good time with my friends. No, that's not me. I'm better than that. But suddenly, he's jolted out of his little reverie and he smells something that smells very good in the air. It's that barbecue that he smells. And he comes over the top of the hill and he, he hears some music playing. Some people having a real good time and a party and dancing. So he calls his servant over and he says, what in the world is going on here? How can there be meat back on the menu? Isn't this a famine? This better be a very special occasion. Well, you remember those Pharisees murmuring at the way Jesus receives and eats with sinners. That word receives doesn't just mean that Jesus could take or leave sinners. It means that he wholeheartedly embraces them. It thrills Jesus to reach out to sinners. He is delighted when they turn away from their sin and turn to him. So when people alienated from God are reconciled with him, God delights in it. He wants to throw a party. And so should we. But do we? 
Now the Pharisees didn't, and that is the whole point of this parable, why Jesus is telling it. Because there's more than one way to be alienated from God. One is by being outwardly rebellious, like the younger brother. It's pretty obvious, and it's easy to identify younger brothers in the world. We point the finger at the meth dealers and the sexual deviants. They're what's wrong with the world. But the older son alienates himself by taking pride in the fact that he's never been outwardly rebellious. That's not as obvious. That's pretty easy to hide. But for that reason, I think it's more dangerous and more insidious and can take root in our hearts. It is hard to identify older brothers. They're respectable. They're responsible. They're conservative in many cases. But they've got tendencies that I need to watch for in my own heart because I am very much at risk of this. But older brothers are also being called to repent in this story, not just younger brothers. And that is Jesus' message for us. Repent of what exactly? Well, there's a great party going on here, but older brother is just not feeling it. He is not happy at all. His brother's back, but the older brother cares really more about sacred cows than he does about actual people. Does he even care that his little brother is still alive? He's so fixated on that fattened calf. The old man has been fattening him up just in case that little twit ever came back home. So he says, no, I'm not going to celebrate. No way. And we wonder, why is he so mad? Why is he so upset about this? Well, the things that make us mad, push us over the edge emotionally, are often the things that indicate where our heart idols are. And that's where we need to be careful. This young man seems to be working off an assumption that if he just works hard and keeps his nose clean and does outwardly the things he ought to do, that his dad is going to be somehow obligated to give him special favor, kill a fattened calf for him. But did you hear what's missing from that picture? Grace is missing. This young man does not understand grace because he's never experienced it. Who needs grace when you never sin? Self-righteousness is really the gas in his tank. Be good, and as a result, things will go well for you because don't you obligate God to give you an easy life if you were good and keep all of his outward commandments. Well, there's a lot of cultural religion that's thriving in our day and age. It's all about being good and assuming that that somehow obligates God to bless you outwardly and to make your life easy. But the church is not about that. The church is all about Jesus, the only one who is good and for that goodness was nailed to a cross so that he can welcome people who aren't good. And Isaiah the prophet doesn't just say, Some of us, like sheep, have gone astray. He said all of us did in one way or another. And the Lord has laid on him, his suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of not some of us, all of us. And we see this when the father goes out to his older son. He doesn't have to do that. This is the second time that he's now gone out to meet one of his boys. He takes the initiative with both sons. Younger brother ran away and now he is back. 
Now his older boy is wandering in a very different way. And that too breaks the father's heart because he really has no favorites. He loves both of his sons. So just as he once ran to the younger brother on the road, now he goes out to reconcile his older son. Why? Well, because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And there is more than one way to be lost. You can be out in the far country and not be beyond the hope of redemption. But you can also stay at home and have your heart be very, very far away from the kingdom. So there's two ways to be lost. And there's a call for repentance in both cases. So the older brother is lost in this joyless sort of drudgery, trying to earn the favor of his dad, when his dad would like nothing better than to give him that favor unconditionally. Occasionally people will tell me, I I need to get back in church. I know I need to go back to church. Not I want to go back, but I need to. There's this sense of obligation to do what I don't really want to do. Now, it's true that we do need to be in church, whether we want to be or not, but we've got to want to be. Jesus wants our hearts, not simply our outward actions. And once we taste and see that the Lord is good, once we see Christ is more beautiful than what the world has to offer, then we can't wait but to run to him. Life is no longer a sense of joyless drudgery or obligation. We want to put down our sin, whether it's the sin of outward rebellion or whether it's the sin of inner self-righteousness. We want to put that aside. We want to run to Jesus once we taste and see how good he is. So that's what the younger brother has done, but the older brother hasn't done yet. So when the father pleads with his son... This volcano erupts. He says, I've been slaving for you. I know it says in our ESVs that I've been serving you. That's not quite strong enough. The actual sense of the word is that he has been slaving for his dad, which is ironic, isn't it? The younger son came back to his father identifying as a slave. The father says, no, you're not a slave. You're my son. The older brother has always been a son, and yet he identifies as a slave. Why? Well, because he doesn't seem to really love his dad. He just seems to love his dad's stuff. He's using his dad to get the things that he really wants. And he says, I've never disobeyed your orders. And if we've ever thought that way, and I confess that I have before, that I've gone down the Ten Commandments and I've said, thou shalt not kill, I'm good. Thou shalt not commit adultery, okay, haven't done that. Thou shalt not steal, yeah, I'm doing pretty good here. I, I'm good. I should be in good with God. If we've ever done that, it really just shows that we don't know what the Ten Commandments mean. We need to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and have Jesus remind us that the sins of our heart and our mind are every bit, uh, make us every bit as guilty. St. Anselm said, you have not yet considered the weight of your sin. Younger brother has, older brother has not. But older brothers need grace just as much as younger brothers do. One's alienated by being outwardly bad. The other is alienated by being smug about being outwardly good. While inside, he is far from his father. He wants his father's stuff. He just doesn't want the father meddling in his own life. 
And this becomes clear when he says he wants to celebrate, not with his father, but with his friends. Doesn't want his father involved at all. He's not my brother, but he's this son of yours. Well, this breaks the father's heart, but he's not really mad about it. And we see this in the tender way that he addresses his son. He says, my child. So he loves both boys and he wants both to be with him. He said, we had to celebrate. We could not not celebrate because this brother of yours, and he is your brother. He's not just my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and is found. And it's as if he says, and now you're lost and I want you to be found. I want you to come back to the party with me. Well, speaking of being found, thankfully there's another side to Rosaria Butterfield's story. She wasn't surprised at all to go into the church and to find resentful older brother types. But what shocked her was that that wasn't all she found. She also was loved and appreciated and discipled and experienced love and support by a ton of grace-filled, joyful people in the church. And her book illustrates really how the church can reach out to people like Rosaria, whom God loves too much to leave as they are. How do we respond when sinners, especially those that we deem somehow to be less worthy of grace than we are, how do we respond when they turn back in repentance to Christ? Because none of us deserve it, or it wouldn't be grace. How do we respond to Christ's ongoing work in the world of seeking and saving the lost? Do we murmur with the Pharisees or do we rejoice with the angels in heaven? Here's what makes the difference. It's again, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the younger rebellious son and he's not the older self-righteous son. He is the one and only son of God. He's not one of the sons in the story. He's the one telling the story. And this son was perfect. And if you were a younger rebellious type, He took your filthy rags of rebellion on himself so that he could give to you and drape over your shoulders that perfect robe of righteousness. And if you were an older brother, self-righteous type, he took your filthy rags of self-righteousness and placed it on himself so that he could give you the pristine robe of his own perfection so that the Lord could look at you and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that my friends, is a cause for celebration. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Christ has freely given to us that perfect righteousness that we cannot earn in a thousand good deeds. Thank you that you have given it to us as a grace that we receive by faith alone. Father, we put our trust in you to save us Pray that you'd instill within us that holy joy when sinners turn back to you in repentance, for that was how you treated us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the reading and preaching of God's Word by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our catechism question for the day is catechism question number 60. How do we keep the Sabbath holy? We keep the Sabbath holy by resting the whole day from worldly affairs or recreations, even ones that are lawful on other days. Except for necessary works or acts of mercy, we should spend all our time publicly and privately worshiping God. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We are thankful for your many gifts and blessings, and now it is our joyful privilege to return to you a portion of that which you have richly blessed us with. Pray that you would use what is given for the ongoing of your kingdom in this world to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.